0: So I'm turning on over to English. Uh, the format of the debate this evening is um, we're going to have an opening statement uh, with about 2000 words. The reason why, why we're mentioning words is because they have already prepared a written, um, uh, written format and uh, have exchanged them to each other, so they have read each other's Uh, opening statement, so the uh, uh, debate will be a better debate. Then we will have a a first rebuttal at 10 minutes per person, Uh, then a second rebuttal on five minutes each, and then we will have a cross-examination with two questions from each person, Uh, and we will have a closing statement with five minutes each uh, uh, before we open for questions and answers from uh, the audience, and it's um, we ask you to reserve your questions until the end, uh, so that we will uh, keep the good a good flow in the debate. The, particip- the participants today uh, in the um, debate called "Does God Exist" is. Uh, uh, he is a professor of philosophy at the University of Agdo. Uh, his areas of, of specialization are metaphysics, artificial intelligence, ethics, and philosophy of religion. He has published a number of articles, many uh, mainly within uh, philosophy of religion, religion, and meta- metaphysics. Uh, and he's also also the uh, author of the forthcoming book God and Ab- Abstract Objects, given out by uh, Cambridge University Press, and uh, along with a Norwegian book called Mening on a given out, out on a Spartacus uh, forlag. Uh, the Christian representative here is uh, Peter S. Williams. He's an assistant professor in Communication and Worldviews at Gibbner uh, School of Journalism and Communication and the Law University uh, in Norway. He, uh, his publications include, uh, or his uh, books include, uh, Understanding Jesus and A Faithful Guide to Philosophy, uh, given out on also uh, forward. So, I will gil- give the room for Peter to uh, give his first um, opening statement and then we'll just
1: uh, go on when he's finished. Thank you very much. See so if I can correctly adjust this head vice torture device that they give you to wear here. Go. So thank you. Uh, thank you to the uh, organisers, Christian Union uh, here at the University, uh, to Professor Einar, of course, uh, to uh, Leif, who's stepped in at the last minute because the, the chap who was going to moderate uh, today has fallen ill. So Leif is uh, stepping into the breach for us. And thank you, most of all, of course, uh, for you for coming out on an afternoon to spend some time thinking about these deep issues. Most people would agree with the Roman writer Cicero, uh, who asked what could be more clear or obvious when we look up to the sky and contemplate the heavens than that there is some divinity of superior intelligence. Such intuitive perceptions of divinity are properly basic beliefs, beliefs grounded in experience, which mean that they're reasonable to accept in the absence of sufficient counter evidence. Nonetheless, I will sketch a selection of arguments for belief in a supernatural creator. Consider first the experience of the writer Teresa Vining, who as a student began to doubt God's existence. She says, for some time there'd been a gnawing uncertainty deep within me. What if it is all a lie? When Teresa hit rock bottom, she discovered some intuitions which countered her scepticism. There is no God, I told myself. This life is all that there is. There is no real meaning, no basis for knowing what's right and what's wrong. It doesn't matter what we do or how we live. No, something deep inside me screamed. It could not be true. I couldn't believe that life was just a sick joke, with humans and their capacity for love, appreciation of beauty, the need for meaning, as the pitiful punchline. That went against all of my experience as a human being. There had to be something more. That night was the beginning of a new search for truth in my life, because the one thing I did know after that night was I couldn't believe that this life is all that there is. Indeed, if the satisfaction of innate uh, existential desires, such as those mentioned by Vinin, requires God to exist to satisfy them, then the intuition that life isn't absurd suggests that God exists. Indeed, experience indicates that natural, innate desires are, in fact, good indicators that objects really exist to satisfy those desires. At the very least, we should assume that no type of innate desire uh, exists in vain until and unless we're shown otherwise. Some people may profess a willingness to, to pay the price of affirming that life is absurd. But this affirmation isn't easy to make or to consistently sustain. As Andy Bannister asks, What was it that possessed evolution to equip us and us alone among the animal kingdom with desires not just for cake and copulation, but for value, meaning, purpose and significance. If atheism is true, we are at best biological freaks whose desires no more map onto reality than do those of a, a dyslexic cartographer. If atheism is true, not merely is there no meaning to which those desires can connect, but the very fact that we have them at all would make us fundamentally irrational, deluded, creatures. But if we are that irrational, that demented, then we can't trust any of our instincts, not one of our desires, none of our most cherished beliefs, including our belief in cake and hope and meaning or even atheism. The atheist Sam Harris Affirms that our logical, mathematical, and physical intuitions have not been designed by natural selection to track truth, with a capital T. Atheist philosopher of mind Patricia Churchland agrees that the principal chore of the nervous system is to get the body parts where they should be in order that the organism may survive. Truth definitely takes the hindmost, she says. But if truth, takes the hindmost on naturalism, how can naturalists be confident about the truth of naturalism or atheism? Indeed, one even the ability to think thoughts that are true or false about reality, that resists naturalistic explanation that human rationality fits within a theistic worldview. Now, Cicero also observed, seeing uh, letters arranged into a poem, we would naturally infer design. Such a pattern is both specified and sufficiently improbable to merit a design inference on the grounds that in all cases where we know the causal origin of specified complexity, experience has shown that intelligent design played a causal role. The natural world exhibits many examples of specified complexity. For example, Stephen Hawking notes that for life to exist, the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. The best explanation for this so-called cosmic fine-tuning is design. talking of the initial state of the universe, Big Bang Cosmology describes the expansion of the universe over a finite length of time. But it doesn't explain why the universe exists. A physical event is a, a contingent reality. And a contingent reality is, by definition, contingent upon something beyond itself. Hence, every physical event must have at least one cause, in at least a general sense of that term. Well, since the first physical event cannot depend upon a physical reality, the fact that our universe had a beginning highlights the need for a non-physical and non-contingent cause. Non-theists must either deny that a contingent thing is dependent upon something outside of itself, or else claim that every physical event has a physical cause. However, both denials are ad hoc, and invoking the necessity of physical causation entails an unparsimonious and arguably impossible infinite regress, and a regress that all of the available scientific evidence excludes. Atheist Peter Cave defends the reality of objective moral duties by appealing to his intuitions about evil, explaining that whatever sceptical arguments may be brought against our belief that killing the innocent is morally wrong, we are more certain that the killing is morally wrong than that the sceptical argument is sound. By the principle of credulity, say killing an innocent child just for fun, clearly isn't merely something that stops the child from functioning normally, which is an empirical observation, or merely something that we dislike because of our evolutionary history, or merely something that our society has decided to discourage. Rather, such an act is objectively wrong, something that we discover we are required and obligated not to do. Of course, at least some of our moral intuitions could be wrong. But this very admission of moral fallibility presupposes moral objectivism. For if subjectivism were true, no moral claims could be objectively false. As the atheist Russ Schaefer Landau argues, subjectivism's picture of uh, ethics entails a kind of moral infallibility for individuals or societies but this sort of infallibility is hard to swallow. Moreover if moral subjectivism were true it couldn't be the case that we objectively ought to consider arguments for subjectivism or that we ought to consider them fairly. Knowing this we see that to accept Any argument for subjectivism would be to take the self-contradictory position that A. There are no objective moral duties, but B. We objectively ought to accept subjectivism. Objective moral duties, then, are transcendent prescriptions that obligate our behaviour. But a prescription requires a prescriber and an obligation requires someone to whom we are obligated. Stephen B. Cowan comments, it might be asked why objective moral values cannot simply exist as brute facts. The problem with this suggestion is that it cannot explain why moral values should have anything whatsoever to do with us. Moral values prescribe behaviour Moral values, understood objectively, bind our consciences. But why should moral values, if they're just simple brute facts, bind my conscience? Moral prescriptions make sense only if there is a moral prescriber. Or as H.P. Owen argued, the dictates of society cannot explain the absoluteness of the categorical moral imperative, but insofar as they are personal, they have a superficial credibility. Bare belief in an impersonal order of claims does not provide the personal basis which their imperatival quality requires. On the one hand, objective moral claims transcend every human person. On the other hand, it's contradictory to assert that impersonal claims are entitled to the allegiance of our wills. The only solution to this paradox is to suppose that the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in the personality of God. Finally, theism, I think, offers the best explanation of various historical facts about Jesus. A first century Jew who not only laid claim to divinity without appearing to be either a madman or a confidence trickster, but who pointed to his fulfilment of prophecy, including his miracles and his resurrection from the dead, as signs that he was indeed who he claimed to be. Jewish scriptures written hundreds of years before the first century contain many predictions about the origins, actions and fate of the Messiah including predictions that it would have been impossible to fulfil by human manipulation, uh, but which accurately describe Jesus. A conservative estimate of the odds of anyone fulfilling, say, just 12 of these prophecies would be 1 in 10 to the 12. That's odds of a trillion to 1. As Thomas V. Morris observes, a series of prophecies made by different people at different times culminating in a single fulfilment by the life of so remarkable a person as Jesus, cries out for an explanation. The most reasonable explanation is that God was involved in the prophecy and the fulfilment. And historical evidence shows that Jesus died on a Roman cross, was buried in a tomb which was later found empty, and that individuals and groups of people subsequently had unexpected experiences in which they sincerely believed they interacted with a resurrected Jesus. It's important to note that Jews had no belief in a dying, much less rising, Messiah. And Jewish beliefs about the afterlife prohibited anyone's rising from the dead before the general resurrection at the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. The controversial question is how best to explain this generally accepted historical data. Well, I would argue with N.T. Wright that as long as one doesn't rule out miracles a priori, all the other explanations for why Christianity arose and took the shape that it did are far less convincing as historical explanations than the one that the early Christians themselves offer, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. So these arguments from desire, rationality, design, causation, duty and Jesus just a sampling from dozens of arguments, I think, jointly validate the widespread perception that there exists a supernatural creator. Thank you.
2: IQ test just to get this on right. <laughs> Which way is it? Is that right? Can you hear me? Okay. So uh, thank you for being invited and thank Peter for his interesting statement. And I will give mine. So uh, the question is does God exist? Now, our presupposition of this question, as, at least as I can hear, is that uh, there's a kind of monotheism behind it. That there's one and only one God. And we're wondering, does this thing exist? Also, I think we should know that before we try to answer any such question, I want to know what it means. So when I want to answer a question, I first want to know what the question means. And in this question, there are two components, namely God and exist, that is the most important. I assume we know the question mark and thus, and then we'll uh, consider God and exist. And by God, I will mean something minimal, namely something like an intentional being worthy of worship. That's my phrase. That God is such an intentional being, means that uh, God has uh, uh, intent certain things over others. That God is worthy of worship means that God has sufficiently many great making properties, namely awesome properties, uh, anything that's great, basically, and not uh, too many bad making properties. And he needs to have sufficiently many to be correctly worshipped. So he's worthy of being worshipped. Uh, among them must be a certain degree of goodness, knowledge, and power, perhaps, so that God can realize certain of his intentions. If he's supposed to be the creator of the universe, for example, he must have a sufficient amount of knowledge and power to be able to realize his intentions. If he just had intentions, like me, when I'm going to clean the house, I have a lot of intentions, but I don't have the willpower to do it. If God was like that, it wouldn't be in the universe. So he needs to have the power and the knowledge and the willingness and so on. So there's a lot built into this. Uh, Uh, So he needs to be able to realize his own intentions. Or, Or I don't know what the gender of God is. Note that the more we put into the meaning of God, the less likely it is that this thing exists, or the less we know about this thing. This is just a matter of probability and logic, basically, and knowledge. Because the more we bake into a concept, the more it's required of the world to realize that concept. So if I just say the world exists, very little is required. But if I say the world exists as a pink sphere, then more is required of the world to realize that claim. So we need to be more, the more we bake into it, the less likely it's to actually be uh, happening. So uh, I want to bake as little as possible into the concept of God in order to uh, talk about it and feel like I know what I'm talking about when I ask this question. So I don't want to, for example, say that at at least not at the get-go, when we start out. I don't want to say that he's the father of Jesus, and there's a trinity, and I don't want to bake all these complicated things into it when we get going, because that will make it very much harder to get started. Maybe we get to them later, when we've started out, whether this minimal thing exists or something. Okay, so so, uh, that's what I mean by God. An intentional being that has a, a... that's worthy worship, has a lot of great properties, basically. Uh, now, what do we mean by exist? Maybe I sh- should I give another example of minimum. how much is required. Like, think of a dice, like two dice or a die. The, what's required for you to throw a three on one die? Well, one out of six options. The world needs to realize one out of six options. Uh, but if uh, you want to throw a, a 12, say, or you want to throw a seven with two dice, then one out of six with respect to two different dice needs to be realized. And there are various ways it can be realized. There could be a three and a four. There could be a five and a two. So more is required to throw those two dice to get a seven than to throw one die to get a six. Right? So it's less likely to happen. That's sort of considerations. So that's why I think we should start with uh, less when we start talking about God, not Presupposed at the get-go that it's this kind of god or that kind of god. So the point is very simple. I'm just saying very little about what I mean by god. Uh, So maybe Peter and I will disagree on this later. Okay. so what should we mean by exist? That's tricky as well. Uh, I think uh, for general philosophical purposes, we should not treat exist to exist as equivalent with being actual, for example, because there might be merely possible things. There might be philosophers are concerned with this, like there being possible worlds, stuff that could have happened but hasn't really been actually the case. Like I could have had a twin brother. And uh, there are other cases, like uh, there could have been more numbers than there are maybe or something like that, and that philosophers think that these possibilities, these merely possible things, they exist in some other sense than the actual. Some philosophers think that's true. So I don't want to presuppose that to exist is just to be actual, like us. There could be merely possible things as well. I also don't want to presuppose that to exist is to be physical, because there could be non-physical stuff as well. So you don't want to say that God exists means God is physical, because there could be non-physical stuff, like mental stuff, or abstract stuff, or merely possible stuff that's not physical. So I I don't want to treat existence as equivalent with physical, I don't want to treat it as equivalent with uh, actual. I uh, also don't want to treat it as equivalent with uh, concrete, that's sometimes used is different from physical. Some concrete stuff is not physical, but it's supposed to abstract stuff. Uh, Like mathematics, numbers are abstract. And concrete stuff is like particles and quarks are concrete. Some quarks are concrete, but maybe not physical. These are technical differences, but let's not assume that exist means being in any one of these categories that are already controversial as to whether there are anything in them. So if I want to know does God exist, I shouldn't assume that he's in one Ontological category, as we call it, from another. Just say, does it exist or not? Existence should be something that covers them all. So to exist is really hard to figure out what that means because I don't. It couldn't be in being any one of these categories. So. Um, I, honestly, I don't really don't know what existence means. Uh, so when I ask, does God exist? I find that very hard because I can't. When I ask, does life exist? I can think of that as like, yeah, well, he does. He's there, you know, physical being sitting right there. But I can't assume that the existence of this is the physicalness of it right. So uh, I can't. So I just want to know whether something exists, and I can't point to any category. That's very hard for me to say what that means. Um, so. Uh, One thing that uh, is a good illumination of existence, in philosophy, at least, we talk this way. Uh, It's not a definition, but it's a good way of thinking of existence. It's to say that something exists, and this is independent of whatever category of existence it's in. But something exists, that means that there is something identical to it. It's a way of illuminating existence. So when I say numbers exist, I say, there, so when I say the number two exists, I say there's something identical to the number two. And that seems true. When I say life exists, life exists. Uh, there's something identical to him. That's what it means. Uh, when I say that uh, uh, my possible twin brother exists in some sense, there is something that's identical to him. But he's not physical. He's not actual or any of those categories. He's uh, merely possible. So that's a good way of illuminating existence. But the tricky part is that when you do that with God, you're making God into this particular thing, like me and you. You're saying there's something identical to God. That's where it is for God to exist. Well, we wonder, what is this thing that's supposed to be identical to God, to make sense of the question? It's not a physical being. It's not some, it's some kind of concrete being. But it's outside of space-time, maybe. It's really hard to get a grasp of what it is that's identical to this thing. And also, God is supposed to be infinite, right, on many uh, approaches. He's supposed to be infinite in all respects. So uh, there's a big question, could there be a thing that's infinite in all respects? Infinite in extension, infinite in time, or maybe A, extensional. He doesn't fit that category of having extension in space. He doesn't fit the category of time, so it's A, temporal. It's really hard to say what it is for something to be something to be identical to that. So I'm really losing grip on what God is supposed to be and and also what it's supposed to mean to say that this thing that I don't really know what it is exists, because it doesn't exist seemingly in the senses that I can make of existence elsewhere. Uh, So I think it's hard uh, to say something about um, both of these terms, actually when you ask the questions. This is a classical philosophical approach. You get asked to a debate, and you start questioning the question, and uh, you never make any progress. <laughs> but you know, there's progress to realizing where there's no progress, right? So um, my best understanding of, of existence is perhaps something like a, a theologian that I like called Paul Tillich. Uh, his understanding is that God is being itself. So I know that there is being. Being, I just mean things that are, exist. Uh, There is being, and and God is supposed to be that being itself, according to Paul Tillich. So he's not a particular thing of some category. He's just the underlying being of everything. That's what God is supposed to be. So maybe that makes sense. But then it's hard. um, So according to Tillich, to be identical with something is to be finite, right? just like I said. To be something is to be a finite, limited thing. But God isn't supposed to be like that. He's just being itself, which is like infinite. It transcends all categories of being. So it's no particular thing, but he's being, which is not like a thing. Can you make sense of this? Um, this amounts to some kind of mysticism, I think. We can't really say much more. And Tillich himself says that, well, this is where it all stops. We can't really expect to be able to say more. So I think that's, and maybe all explanations have to stop somewhere, right? It can't go on forever. Uh, Maybe it has to stop in mysticism at some point. So uh, um, maybe that's a way of understanding the question. I can play along with that for a bit. Now, uh, so I'm going to work with this notion, right? So uh, I say that uh, God is that kind of thing. He's like the underlying being of everything. And uh, that's not a particular thing. It's not a a limited finite thing. It's an infinite transcendent category of being, which is underlying you and me and abstract objects and concrete stuff. So let's just work with that to get going. We can't get stuck forever here. i got limited time. So are there any reasons to think such a god exists? So uh, Peter gave a bunch of reasons. I think the best reason. Which is, to me, still uh, defeatable. It's it's defeasible. It's it's a reason that might be outweighed by other reasons, in other words. But I think the best reason is what Peter was mentioning in the case of uh, cosmic fine tuning. So, cosmology, physics, and cosmology, the study of the universe, they figure out, they actually claim, uh, that the constants and and laws of nature have a certain uh, value. They're just like a quantity that they've measured. Like gravity has so and so much strength, and the electron has negative charge and, uh, to a certain extent, and it has a certain mass. That's just a quantity uh, that they measure. And it's not like they've reasoned themselves to these quantities. They just observed measure measured uh, So they settle for a measurement system, and then they find these quantities. And they find the different kinds of quantities. And they look really arbitrary. They look like you know, 3.5, 6.8. And there's no reason to like think, why isn't it just seven? Why couldn't it just be one and zero? It's like it doesn't look natural. It's just arbitrary numbers, these quantities of the fundamental constants of the universe. And what they've also figured out is that if you modify any one of these constant quantities, the laws of the constants, if you made gravity a bit stronger or weaker, or if you made the mass of the electron stronger or, or, or weaker, um, more or less, um, It just wouldn't be possible for it to be the kind of life that we have. So biological life as we know it is only possible when the quantities are roughly as they are and in the correlation to each other as they are. So the ratio between them has to be exactly right. And they could take on infinitely many other values, at least a lot of other values. And uh, any other combination wouldn't have life like us. So that's really mysterious. And. Something that sort of cries out for explanation. In fact, it's so unlikely that the probability along one of the axes for life is actually this. It's one to the chances of life is like one to ten to the power of 55, meaning 55 zeros after. It's like unimaginably big along one of there, axes of measurements. And it's so unlikely that no one would put any money on that one thing happening. So if you had a dark board and all the dots, you had 10 to the power of 55 dots, and you threw it, and you're going to hit one. And if you only hit that one, you would get the jackpot. Everything else would be impossible for you to live. You wouldn't go for it. It's so unlikely to set your life on that one. Right? So in the case of uh, the constants, it's so unlikely that there's life. And yet yeah, here we are, living. Presumably. So uh, it's so unlikely, so it needs an explanation. Uh, and that, many people think, the best reason for the, why there still is life, despite this of world would not being life, is that there's some intention behind it. If someone with the power and knowledge and, and willingness and all that, someone had all that, and he rigged the game, he just tuned all the knobs exactly right, and just hit play, and there was life. Right. then it's explainable why there's life, why this one, among all these, happened because someone wanted it to happen then you have an explanation but if you just said, oh it's just shit happens, it's pure chance then you wouldn't think this would ever happen, it would be so unlikely so it's a bad explanation so either you have to just say there's no explanation for it, it's just chance and we are here or you would have to say there's some kind of intention behind it and I think actually When you compare this uh, argument to uh, other kinds of argumentation that you find in science in general and in ordinary life in general, it's exactly the same strategy we use to argue ourselves into reasonable positions that you would use to to, uh, invoke God here. So I think if you say, oh, no, the chance hypothesis is much more likely, you're being somewhat inconsistent, I think, because you use the same kind of argumentation everywhere else, so why not here? It's like you have accepted this kind of argumentation in every area of life, and when it comes to God, you're just like, oh, I'm not going to accept it this time. It seems really arbitrary. So I agree with Peter that this is a pretty good argument to give some reason for the existence of some kind of intention behind the universe, actually. And it's much better than these design arguments that goes down to the detailed biological levels, because we have better explanations there. But when it comes to the universe, it's different. You can't invoke Darwin at the universe level. There are some competing hypotheses, like multiverse yeah. and so on. But I'm not going to talk about that. So I think this is one good reason to believe in this god. I'm not saying there are no, no reason. Um, I think the best reason against god is the problem of evil. I think you're all familiar with that. A lot of bad things happen. And if there's a god with intention, will, and power to deal with this universe, you should have dealt with some of that um, evil already. he should probably have shown himself a bit more often, not just like maybe once a long time ago. (laughs) So uh, I think the problem here was the best reason against. So at this point, I really don't know. I might disappoint you. You might thought I was going to come here and be the atheist and fight Peter over this. But I really don't know what I'm supposed to think at this point. Uh, I think there are some good reasons for there being some intention behind the universe, like this argument. I think there are some really good reasons against, like, the problem of evil. Uh, I think some, I'll talk about this later, but I think some Peter's arguments are good and some of them are not so good, so we'll talk about that later, but I think there are pros and cons here, and I'm not sure what to believe. So I want to end by um, saying two things. One is that we have to, and I'm in agreement with Peter here, that we have to weigh up all considerations. This is sort of like a... Holistic picture, you have to weigh them up and see, here are all the pros, and here are all the cons, and then where are we going to go? I think that's the best. You can't just appeal to one piece of evidence and say, oh, I had a revelation in church. That's it. I uh, now strongly believe." It's not enough for me, because there are so many other explanations of that revelation of yours, from the outside at least, that are competing with your introspective claims. So I wouldn't be convinced by that. Either my head just turned off, or some fan just turned off. uh, it's a weird change of mood. <laughs> or God is trying to tell me something here. Like, he's like listening now. <laughs> okay, uh, so let me end by another note. The last note is, and I've written a bit on this actually. So I think it's important to separate uh, belief from other categories, other attitudes that you can have as a religious person, like hope, for example. So uh, if you're a theist, you believe, traditional understanding of theism is that you believe that there's a God. If you're an atheist, you believe that there's no God. And if you're, you're an agnostic, you don't believe that there's a God. You also don't believe that there's no God. You just withhold all your beliefs. And you say, I don't know. Now, uh, I think you, there are other categories that are interesting here. I don't feel ho- at home in any of these categories. So there are other categories. Like I actually hope that there's a God. I think it would be awesome if I like realized that there was this fundamental being itself that was worthy of worship, and I would be like, that is awesome, <laughs> this is like Star Trek times 10, uh, that would be really cool, and I really hope that there's such a thing, it would be good, it would be showing that there's actually goodness at bottom, maybe even, uh, we just screwed up for a while, so I actually hope that there's a God, but I don't really believe that there's a God, I don't have enough evidence, I'm like Bucking Russell. If I came to the gates of heaven and they, and they asked me, why didn't you ever start believing? I would be like, I didn't have enough evidence. You didn't give me enough. But I still think you would accept me because I'm such a nice guy. <laughs> but I went close with the thought that I think you can hope that there's a God. And I do, actually. And the interesting thing here is, is sort of a logical feature. You can hope something even though you don't believe it. So when I believe something, I can believe it to certain different degrees. As long as I don't know, or as long as I'm not certain, as long as there's room for doubt, I can hope contrary to my belief. So I can say, I believe that uh, my wife is being is cheating on me. But I really hope that she's not. That makes sense. Uh, and I can so this goes for all the categories, right? I didn't mean to mention my wife and any setting here, it was just. But that's, that goes for any category. You can believe that there's a god and hope that there's not. And you can believe there's no god and hope that there is. This is a logically coherent position. It makes semantically sense as well. Uh, now note that hope is different from wishing, for example. So if you say, I know that the Earth is round, but I wish it was flat, that makes sense. But that's contrafactual. It's going in, it's wishing something were the case, that's actually the case. But in hoping, you're actually hoping that something is the case that isn't, you believe isn't. So it's a, it keeps you here, close at home, so to speak. So hope is an interesting category, and I think for many purposes that's enough for me. I can hope that there's a God, and I can live accordingly. I don't usually live, I can live accordingly and hope that there's a God, even though I don't believe. So, I'm not, so I, I'll say more about this later, but I'm just not seeing the fixation of unbelief. And I think in times when there's extremism and, and discrimination and hatred based on religion, maybe this strong categories of belief is overrated. Maybe you should hope, because you're less willing to act on your hope than your beliefs. So if you believe stuff, if you believe it's true, you're willing to bet on it, you're willing to act on it. But if you just hope, I wouldn't be willing to act so much on it. If I just hope that there's you know, a million dollars outside, I wouldn't be willing to set my life on the fact that there being a million dollars outside the door. But if I believe it, I oh have. Okay, so that was my opening statement, I think. Hold on. Uh, oh, one sentence. Oh, sorry, I'm taking maybe too long. Um, the question remains, of course does God exist or not? I haven't answered it. I haven't said yes or no. I, the answer is I just don't know. <laughs> so <that's>, uh, <laughs> that was my.
3: Thank
1: you there we go. So I'd like to thank Ina for his very substantial, I thought interesting opening speech. It's unfortunate that I don't have time in my ten minutes here to address every aspect of that speech uh, here and now. Oedon thinks that the arguments for and against theism, God, are equally balanced. He illustrates this from the the evidential argument from evil on the one hand and the the fine-tuning argument from design on the other. However, on the one hand, note that the evidential argument from evil isn't an argument for atheism, but rather an argument against a specific concept of deity. Moreover, as the atheist Michael Tooley notes, even if it can be shown that the evils that are found in the world render the existence of God unlikely, it might still be the case that the existence of God is not unlikely all things considered. For perhaps the argument from evil can be overcome by appealing either to positive arguments in support of the existence of God, or to the idea that belief in the existence of God is properly basic. Daniel Howard slided gives the following illustration of this last point. Suppose you learn that 95% of the French population cannot swim. This statistic is good evidence to think that Pierre, your friend from Paris, can't swim? Does it follow that you should believe that Pierre can't swim? Well, what if you and Pierre spent last Saturday afternoon together swimming? Your experience with Pierre is much better evidence to think that he can swim, even though the statistical evidence by itself makes it very likely that he cannot swim. Now, most people who experience the bad things that happen in the world, nevertheless, also experience the world as intended by a being worthy of worship. On the other hand, Einar acknowledges that God is a better explanation of fine-tuning than that it happened by pure chance, he says. The only alternative scientific explanation is physical necessity, But these constants he was talking about are not determined by the laws of nature. The laws of nature are consistent with a wide range of values for these constants. And the fine-tuning also includes certain arbitrary initial conditions on which the laws of nature operate. For example, the amount of entropy in the universe. The inability of physical necessity to account for fine-tuning explains why the most popular objection to this argument seeks to reduce the complexity of fine-tuning by positing multiple universes. But that's like explaining a book by positing enough monkeys typing away for long enough to have produced it by chance. In the absence of independent evidence for enough monkeys and so on, the one author explanation is preferable and the same goes for fine-tuning. And this is the situation in which we find ourselves, for according to physicist Brian Green, people should be sceptical of multiverse theories because there is no evidence supporting their existence. Indeed, there's evidence against a multiverse. Roger Penrose asked us to consider how ridiculously cheaper, in sense of improbabilities, it would be to simply produce by the random collision of particles the entire solar system with all of its life ready-made. Why did we not come about this way, rather than from an absurdly less probable Big Bang? It seems to me, he says, that this conundrum simply points to the incorrectness of the bubble, the multi-universe idea. Bertrand Russell declared that man is the product of causes that had no provision of the ends they were achieving. His origin, his growth, his hopes, his fears, his loves, his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. Well, the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Well, as the supposed outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, Russell's atheism can't explain or justify his belief in atheism. Nor does his scaffolding of unyielding despair square with his desire for something beyond the universe. Russell admitted, said, the center of me is always and eternally a terrible pain, a curious, wild pain, a searching for something beyond what the world contains. He wrote, something in one seems obstinately to belong to God and to refuse to enter into any earthly communion. Or at least, that's how I should express it if I thought there was a God. I care passionately for this world, and yet, what is it all for? There must be something more important, one feels, although I don't believe that there is. The psychologist Viktor Frankl called this innate desire that life should have an adequate meaning and purpose and significance, our primary need Theologian Clark Pinnock comments that when the word God is used, one thing it has reference to is the objective ground in reality itself of our ineradicable confidence in the final worth of our existence. I would suggest that we reflect on our attitudes, our actions. Do they not imply this very confidence, even if we've not actually taken the step of explicit faith in God? There is a sense in which the decision to believe renders explicit the seeds of faith, implicit in the confidence that humanists and Christians both manifest towards the goodness, the worthwhileness of life. Hence, if one is agnostic about God's existence, reaching out to God is nonetheless a reasonable thing to do. Such faith may involve a fairly minimal concept of God but further contemplation and experience may build upon this and indeed the existential desire for a transcendent foundation of hope is itself a clue pointing to God's existence. For one can argue, one, humans have an innate desire for the transcendent. Two, most innate human desires relate to some object of satisfaction. Three, therefore, the transcendent probably exists. I agree with Aina that we must weigh all such considerations for and against God's existence up against each other. I agree that if one is agnostic about God's existence, it can be rational to place one's active hope or trust in God. Perhaps I'm going just slightly further, actually, than Einar said in his uh, speech there with that comment. Uh, You can do that, uh, and such faith is wholly compatible with respect for reason and evidence. As Einar says, it's not always irrational to act on one's hope. So I can live religiously without believing one thing or another with respect to God's existence. However, I do think that such hope is in itself one of those clues that together, I think, contribute to a sufficient case for theism. Thank you
2: Thank you again. use more. Thing That's why <laughs> this is taking a bit. So, uh, I will now uh, comment on his uh, opening speech. I just need to open the. Now, uh, thank you, Peter, for comments and your opening uh, speech, and I think. I think, actually, we're in a lot of agreement on many things, actually, which might be boring for the audience. But it might be a good sign for something being more or less reasonable. Uh, because I think we're in agreement on, for example, that we need to overall weigh things up. I think a lot of people in philosophy of religion is, are in agreement on this, even more generally. We need to weigh things up. Now, uh, as I, my problem with... Uh, And I also, with Peter, on the the fine-tuning argument, I think that actually gives some reason to think uh, that there's got to be some intentions behind the universe, which is most likely something like what we mean by a god. Uh, Now, of course, I don't see any reason to think that's the Christian god or or something like that. Uh, All you need for the fine-tuning argument is just some kind of intention with this sufficient power and knowledge to actually pull it off. But it doesn't have to be perfectly good, for example. It could be a malicious devil who just created the universe sit there and watch and see us like torture each other uh, through war and war and bad political elections. Uh, And that could be it, right? So it doesn't follow that it has to be good. And that's where the problem with evil sort of comes in and gives some reason to think it's not perfectly good, or not perfectly powerful, or not perfectly knowledgeable, because then you would have done something about this. So I think we're in a lot of agreement about these things. What I have problems with uh, in Peter's opening speech is more the fact that he just gives six arguments for. And then he doesn't mention any arguments against. Uh, uh, So uh, I would like to see him talk about what are the biggest problem you have with the existence of God? Why so eager on showing that God exists? Uh, What are the main problems for doubt here? And how does that weigh up against these six reasons? Uh, that's what I would want to know more about uh, from his speech. And uh, I said, as I said, the problem of evil is for me the biggest problem, and the design, the, the, the cosmic tuning argument, fine-tuning argument, is the biggest argument, gives the most reasons for. I think. And then there are a bunch of other things that might come in uh, and and kick in on on weights here. But uh, at least that's my pro and So I wonder what Peter's uh, cons are. What are the main problems you have with this? Uh, And let me say a bit more on details. Uh, So one thing he's very eager about in his opening speech, as well as in his comments to me right now, is this idea that if we have some kind of innate desire, we should assume that it's not there for nothing. We should assume that there's an innate desire there that corresponds to something. So if I have an innate desire, or we have an innate desire for existential meaning, we want to know, this can't be it. We're like Camus, we're like, this is absurd, (laughs) this is pointless, it's got to be more. If I have this innate desire, I see no reason whatsoever to think that that, therefore, we should assume that there's something corresponding to it. Because we have a lot of innate desires, or we might have a lot of innate desires that doesn't correspond to anything anymore. It might have corresponded to something when we you know, we were selected for in Darwinian evolution way back, and those conditions aren't around anymore. But I still have the innate desires. We might be like aggressive for the wrong reasons today. It doesn't mean that that corresponds to any real need today. We might be afraid of the dark today. It doesn't mean that we should be afraid of the dark. We should rather be afraid of traffic. That's where we die, or the kitchen. That's where most people die. But we don't have those innate fears. We have innate fears that were built in a very long time ago under different conditions. The social changes happen much faster than the biological changes. So, I don't see why we should think that these desires that we have, even though they're innate, should correspond to anything real. That's our problem, that they don't usually correspond to anything real. That's why we have all these weird people out there. Uh, That's why we all have these crazy people out there. So, I don't understand that argument from desire. Um, And also, there are tons of evidence from psychology that people put intentions into stuff that has no intention too easily. And this is explained because we have, well, it was a survival value to give intention to some noise in the bush, to put a for example. You, if you heard some noise in the bush, in the dark, you better off expecting it to be a tiger that's going to kill you. If you thought, oh, I might just be, you know, shit happens. Who knows? And that tiger would eat you. So you wouldn't survive as much. If you had that fear for that noise, you would be better off and get more children and have more uh, offspring. So there are other explanations for many of our desires. So when I put intention behind this to explain stuff, I might be doing that fallacy. I might be using an intention, an inclination I've been selected for, for other reasons, to explain this God. So I don't see the desire argument at all. I think that's probably the. The argument I like the least of his uh, opening speech. Also, there's uh, you should cut me off. On a, I have no conception of time right now. So uh, there's also uh, a couple of others like uh, this moral argument that uh, seems so to be thinking that there's either you have moral subjectivism, which means that moral values are just preferences that we have. You know, what's good for me may not be good for you, so we can't really correct each other. There can't really be a disagreement. And there's no reason to do much at all beyond whatever my preferences are. So he seems to be saying that either you have that view, or you have like a divine foundational morality view. And there's nothing in between. But I think there are tons of positions in between. Here are a couple that are mainly uh, discussed in philosophy. One is like uh, formal hedonism, for example. I don't like this one, but it's, it's a theory that needs to be considered. So form of Hinduism says that the only thing that has value is pain and pleasure. Ultimately, it's good and bad, pain and pleasure. And everything is explained in terms of looks. So when I say I ought to do something, it's because it would enhance the pleasure. And when I say you ought not to do something, it's because it would enhance pain to do it. So you shouldn't do it. Now we explain this because of pain and pleasure being good and bad, or otherwise bad and good. So, pleasure is just good. It's a good thing to have. So, why do I drink? Well, it gives me pleasure. Why does it give you pleasure? Well, it just does. Why is the drinking good? Well, it gives me pleasure. Why is pleasure good? It just is. Not much more to say. So, it's nothing mysterious about saying pleasure is good. That's what we like. We all like it. No one will say, I hate pleasure. And, And when there's pain, it's like, this is bad. I don't want to be in this position of pain. I want to get out of it. So I don't. You ought not to do what gives people pain. This is a reasonable position. It's not just subjectivism. If I just felt that your pain was good, I would just be wrong. Your pain was bad, and I would be a maniac. So this is a position that's fall in between. It's an objective theory of moral values, but it's not nothing to do with God. Explanation stops in pain and pleasure rather than in God. Another one is preferences that I like more. People have preferences. Animals have preferences. It's not up to me. I can't just break off people's preferences. So my kids, they have hopes and dreams. I can't just kill them when I want to. Because that would be bad. It would be cutting off their preferences. And their their hopes and dreams. That's where it all stops. That's just not something it's up to me to do. So I can't do it. I ought not to do it. There are many such theories. So I think there are middle positions here between the radical relativism, subjectivism, and the divine foundational moral theory. So that's another problem I had. Uh, last one is just um, there's also actually an objection, Peter gives an objection to subjectivism that I think is false. He says that object subjectivism, sorry, subjectivism. He says that subjectivists would be taken to the self-contradictory position that there are no objective moral duties—that's true. That we hold that, but also that we objectively ought to accept subjectivism. Right? So they say subjectivism is true, so you ought to accept it. But if there are no moral values, the ought is misplaced. There, you ought not to do anything you don't want to, right? If all the values are preferences. But there are two problems with this argument. One is that this ought is a different kind of ought. It's not a moral ought, that you. You, it's not that you morally ought to hold this subjectives. it's a rational rationality. It doesn't have to do with moral values; it has to do with rationality. And another thing is that if they could also just say, "Well, you don't have to; if you don't want to. You can accept whatever you want, because subjectivism is true." So there's a very big difference between um, what, I, when subjectivism is true, what I ought to do from my perspective, and whether or not subjectivism is true. So there's that. Uh, it was a technical thing, I yeah, got hung up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have others, but we can take that later. Okay, thanks. <laughs> so there's another round.
4: <laughs>
1: So now the time pressure is on. What's the the biggest uh, problem for the theistic position? I think I agree with Aina here that it's it's versions of the problem of evil, which I did respond to in uh, my previous uh, speech. I think that is uh, the biggest obstacle uh, to belief, certainly in a Christian type of God, because as I know, it's not an argument against belief in a deity per se, but against a specific concept of deity. And I gave some responses to that in my previous speech. What sort of God comes out of the arguments that I'm giving? Indeed, that's, that's one way of, of defining what you're meaning by God, to point to, well, here is a bunch of arguments, and Occam's razor would favour putting together the conclusions of all of those arguments into one being, rather than distributing them amongst a whole range of different beings. So there's one being who's the cause of the universe, and one being who fine-tuned it, and another being who's the ground of moral value, and so on. Uh, so you're sort of building up, Uh, like the police building up an identikit picture uh, of uh, the suspect in a crime from different uh, witnesses. On desire, Ina says, well, perhaps these existential existential desires in us used to correspond to reality, but no longer do. So they don't prove uh, that there is uh, a transcendent ground of hope now. But maybe you might be tempted to think that uh, if if God, if a transcendent ground of reality uh, that found uh, foundational to hope that in the past was a hope that did correspond to that ground, that it did exist, that the most plausible position is to think that that ground continues to exist now uh, rather than uh, something somehow uh, made it go out of uh, existence, so maybe uh, that debate will hinge on what you think what your intuitions are on that issue of whether you say you know if god if God did exist, maybe the most plausible thing to think is that he still does um, also the the argument I gave from the uh, with the fact that we should assume that innate desires correspond to reality until shown otherwise. Uh, in a sense it's specifically designed to counter the objection that maybe we can point to some innate desires that fail to correspond to reality. Uh, It's not not enough just to say, well here's an innate desire that I think does fail to correspond to reality. The question will be, well does this this innate desire that I'm using in this argument to point to God as the ground of hope or worth or morality or whatever uh, that we hope for does that desire fail to correspond to reality and we should assume that it does correspond to reality until we're given a specific reason uh, not to to think so. Uh, The psychology of assuming uh, intentionality behind things in the world, this is I would have thought an argument that uh, would tend to be put more within the realm of design arguments and, and to say you're, it, it just seems to you like the world is designed this is uh, an overactive sort of evolutionary mechanism that had its use in the past and has uh, come up with these false ideas of design behind the world so i thought it was interesting that I didn't put that as a counter to say the fine-tuning argument but tried to to use it here i don't quite see Uh, the relevance there Um, the desires, the innate existential desires I'm talking about uh, they are things that we experience from the inside as as outwardly directed as as teleological as having uh, reference uh, as wanting there to be a satisfaction that corresponds to them Uh, nothing was said about the the argument from causality or the arguments uh, from uh, Jesus in that last speech so perhaps we'll pick them up Later. As for the issues of duty, if I've got time just to go to the the argument from duty, Um, of course there are lots of different moral theories about picking out what the right thing to do is, what we should pursue, and so on. But the question on on any of those theories, I think, will be if that is a theory that says yes, there are uh, moral duties that hold independently of what you or I or we decide or think or agree, there are discoverable objective moral duties, how does that particular moral theory account for the existence of such a thing? Uh, Does it do a better job than the argument that says, well, there is someone to whom we are rightly obligated. There is someone who prescribes those prescriptions that we meet in moral experience. So on hedonism, Suppose hedonism is true, and you think that you have an objective moral duty to pursue uh, pleasure and to avoid pain. But what accounts for the, the objective, prescriptive, and obligatory nature of the need to pursue pleasure and avoid pain? So you haven't really uh, got away from uh, the core of this argument from duty uh, by doing that, I think. Also, in terms of uh, rational ought, I, I think that, that the rational ought doesn't give you a moral ought. It gives you a pragmatic ought. It says this does follow, these, this conclusion does follow from these premises. If you're interested in being rational, that's what you, you, you should believe in that rational ought sense, a pragmatic sense of you know, if this is what you want, being rational, then this is what you have to do to achieve that end. But logic itself can't tell you that it's it's wrong to be cavalier about considering arguments, or that you ought to consider arguments fairly, uh, that you ought to, oh, come on, be reasonable. Uh, You can't get those moral oughts out of logical uh, descriptions of what premises follow from others any more than you get the moral ought out of uh, any kind of is description of the way the world is, as uh, David Hume uh, argued back in the Enlightenment. Thanks very much. Okay,
2: so, uh, oh, I need that. You uh, stole the microphone. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, it's my docently plan. <laughs> Silence me by taking the microphone.
2: Okay, so thanks again, and now it's starting to get interesting. Uh, so, uh, I don't know, a lot of the things you said I said, I didn't actually say. Or so <laughs> so that's, uh, <laughs> that's. But let me mention a couple uh, things. Um, so, with respect to the psychological evidence, I alluded to. I did say that this could, that could also explain why we have these intentions, why we put intentions behind this argument. So, that would be the feasible reason that I wouldn't be totally convinced by this, because the psych evidence might be indicating that I'm just using an old desire for a new purpose. Uh, and when, with that said, this is called, often called a debunking argument. Uh, with that said, I'm not in general convinced by these kinds of arguments that says, well, the cause of your this and this is something, therefore, you make it illegitimate to that. I mean, the cause might be arbitrary, but you might still be right. So I'm not in general convinced by this. So a priest might tell me that God exists, and then it turns out that the priest was an idiot, but then it turns out that God exists anyways. And I, so I, was, I shouldn't believed in him, in one sense, but not for the reason that he told me. So I mean I'm not in general convinced that just because there's some old reason for me putting intention behind this, I shouldn't now believe that there's an intention on it. There might actually be, even though that reason was bad. Or God might have put that reason in there to begin with, right? So there are many reasons back and forth to think that the psych evidence doesn't doesn't debunk this, but it might. So i just I just think we should go ten more rounds on this. So. The other uh, I also didn't say that the existential desire that we have for meaning, I'm actually writing a book on the meaning of life right now. I have an existential desire for meaning. I'm desperately searching meaning. That's like the main purpose of my life, to find meaning. But I didn't say that that desire used to correspond to anything but no longer does. I said we have a bunch of desires that used to correspond but no longer does. And that gives us evidence that we shouldn't assume, without further ado, that our desires therefore correspond to something. Not even when we don't have other explanations of them. I'm just not convinced by that. And I also think that there are tons of other explanations for our desires that we need to consider. That might outweigh that assumption that we should just believe our innate desires to correspond to something real. Because there are so many other explanations. Like psychology, have all these explanations for our desires. And we are terrible at introspection, for example. There's tons of psych evidence that we are terrible at introspective introspection, like what we we don't know what's in our own mind. Like our parents know us better than we do. In fact, Facebook. When they do a search on 30 of your likes, they know more than you about you. There's evidence for this. It's pretty interesting. So I didn't say that. Um, Also, uh, with respect to moral values without God, an interesting fact is that Peter is now saying, look, if you take heudonists to the preference view, what explains that obligation connecting to avoiding pain and gaining pleasure? He wants a further explanation. But the whole point is that that's where explanation stops. Pleasure is good. I understand that. Pleasure is good. That's why I want pleasure. There's nothing more to say. Pain is bad. That's why we should avoid pain. That's where it stops. And he wants to know, but why does that give you an obligation? Because of the pain. Because of the pleasure. It's like the classical argument against theists. When they say, oh, God is the ground of everything. And then I say, what grounds God? And the theists are like, oh, that's such a boring objection. Everyone's given that. Now it's sort of giving it to me. <laughs> so it's sort of it's an interesting fact. I mean, the hedonists would just say it stops with pain and pleasure. The, the theists would just say it stops with God. And the preference theorists would just say it stops with preferences. And where should you stop? That's the question. And I don't think uh, you should ask the one for more explanation and then not demand it of yourself. That's like a bad dialectical move. So I think that's where it stops. And note, finally, that I think I have a better handle on pain being bad and pleasure being good even though I'm not a humanist I have a better handle on that fact than I have on anything coming to this question that's why I started out problematizing existence and God I don't really know what it means when it comes to the really digging into the concepts when you dig into the concept of pain I'll show you some pain and we will quickly agree that we should avoid this right? so I, I think it's, a better, it's probably a more reasonable place to stop for me in pain and pleasure preferences, then in some further explanation that's supposed to ground the goodness of that again, because then the question is what grounds that goodness. So uh, there's a lot of other things I could say one sentence. Can I say one more? So yeah, I didn't mention the causal argument that you gave. Uh, it's a cost, it's a version of the common cosmological argument. If you know this, it's saying something like. Uh, Every event has a cause, every physical event has a physical cause, the universe is a physical event, so it has a physical cause, but it can't be the first physical cause because that would have a physical cause, so that would have to be gone. That's the argument. Now, my objection to that argument, I'm actually not convinced by that at all, my objection to that argument is just that there doesn't have to be a first physical cause. There could be infinitely many physical causes backwards. And if you appeal to the Big Bang and say, but the Big Bang is supposed to be the first physical cause, I would just say that's not really at all what's coming out of physical theories. What's coming out of physical theories is that the Big Bang is a singularity. It's a point of destination where nothing goes beyond. But there's no first event after the Big Bang. It's like the numbers. You can go closer and closer to infinity right? or backwards. You can go from uh, zero to negative numbers. You can go down to negative infinity. But there's no number right before negative infinity. It's a limit. It's not like a jump from there to there. So there's, actually there's a big jump from there to the next, because there's no next one. This is provable mathematics. <laughs> so there doesn't have to be a first physical clause, just like there doesn't have to be a biggest negative number. It's a limit point. that doesn't really exist, the big data. So that's plasma the model. So I mean, I'm not convinced by the first clause at all. So that's why I didn't mention it. But. OK, I'll probably talk to him. It was very interesting though. I think this is very, I think we got to some juice here. Does he have another one, or specifically? No. Questions to each other. Oh, questions to each other. So. Okay. Right.
1: Let's come here and pass this uh, back and forth. Do you want to go first, or
2: I can go first? Yeah.
1: So. uh, I'll just
3: put this
2: back on. Um. I just got this new remarkable and I have no idea how it works, but it's <laughs> it was very helpful. So my question is to uh, Peter. Uh, I guess I have um, two questions. I we supposed to have two questions. Okay, so
4: I have two questions.
2: <laughs> uh, one is, uh, I have a problem here as I in general. So I've done a lot of these debates with uh, theists. And I'm not really. I always get called and as the atheist in the debate, but I'm not really an atheist. <laughs> but my main problem is always sort of the same, very often. So I wonder what your thoughts are on this. Uh, theists. So when th- people argue for theism, they sort of have here's my problem. They have an agenda. They have a conclusion, and then they desperately go to find reasons for that conclusion. And for me, as a philosopher, well, I have no agenda. I find it sort of worrisome that you're desperately searching for a conclusion that you're already on board with, rather than trying to figure out the real reasons why you should be on board with. So it's sort of like a desperately looking for the reasons for what you already believe. That's sort of my main worry with the general monotheism debates. Uh, so they sort of uh, they're, they're presupposing what they're trying to prove, and a lot of the times it doesn't have this circular argumentation, but a lot of times it's like that, that, that it's not. I feel it's somewhat dishonest to not really consider every pro and con. So I can mention a lot of books that do this, but in general. So I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Like, how much do you already have your conclusion and just looking for reasons for it? Mm -hmm. Is that why, for example, you didn't have any arguments against God's reason? I mean, or was it just because you were supposed to be a theist you just gave all the reasons for? Maybe that's a better explanation. But that's my general problem with theism. Uh, They have this agenda that they go for. Another, problem, another question, my question is, what do you think of that? The other question is, uh, what do you think of epistemic humbleness? Like, I mean, how much do you think you know, and how much do you think you don't know? Mm-hmm. How, how, how strong are your beliefs? How weak are your beliefs? So I'm pretty much a skeptic. So I teach epistemology, which is the theory of knowledge. and I, I, Every time I teach this, I'm like, I don't know. I have no clue. I, know. I have no reason to believe anything. I might be in the Matrix. I don't even know if I have hands at times. I put myself in a skeptical context. And then I can forget them and go out and play baguette, as Hume said. Or I can drive my motorcycle and think, oh, life's great. I know that I should turn out, otherwise I will die. So I know stuff. But when I start questioning it, I no longer know anything. So it's sort of like contextual to me when I say I know stuff and when I say I don't know stuff. And I wonder why is never, <laughs> never have this, like, skeptical attitude to I mean, they say they doubt stuff, but in the, in the academic literature, and in the books on this, and in the debates, it doesn't really come off as to have much doubt. So I wonder what your thoughts are on epistemic humbleness mm. in general. I mean, it's related to the first one, but the first one is more like dialectic, the other one is more like knowledge.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I'll probably take them in reverse order, if I, if I may. Um, I think with uh, knowledge, I I, I think I'm convinced of the sort of common sense tradition um, that says we we start with our basic intuitions, the way the world seems to us. And then we hold that to uh, the account of rational critical inquiry. But uh, ultimately, any argument for anything uh, is going to ultimately track down to some sort of presuppositions where you say, well, I, that just seems reasonable to me. I, you know, I, I would find it hard to uh, give an argument for this on the basis of anything that seems more basic or more plausible as a starting place for arguing than we've already arrived to. And certainly in some areas, you are like with you know, belief in uh, the, the rationality of following the basic laws of logical Deduction and inference, and so on, you you, you can't argue for the rationality of those things without assuming them already. But I don't think that that shows that it's irrational to assume them. Assuming those starting points is the only way to be rational and critical of of, of anything else. Uh, And I hold the same kind of view, as I say, I started out talking with Cicero and sort of basic. Perception or intuition or religious experience of there being a god. And certainly, that's and kind of crossing slightly into the first question here. My my, my background of, of, of being raised within a, uh, a Christian context um, for me it was the, the the sense of uh, of then coming to the stage of, of you know you become an adult and you start thinking yeah what what do I really think do I really think this believe this. Just because of my upbringing, my family background, or peer pressure, or whatever, um, going to university and, and studying philosophy and saying, "Okay, let's take these arguments seriously. You've got to follow the logic where it leads. You've got to follow the evidence where it leads. You've got to. You, you can't profess faith in a, in a god of truth and not care about truth. Those two. Have, yes, you might you start with the assumption that they're not going to come apart." But if they come apart, it is no good saying, well, I want to hold on to God and ditch truth. Thank you very much. You know, that, that makes no sense. Don't do that, folks. Follow, follow truth. So uh, certainly I've gone through uh, and written about in my professional work, and in, in the start of my um, book, Faithful Guide to Philosophy, that uh, Leif was kind enough to mention, I start out saying that, the, that Christians have to take doubt seriously. Um, doubt is the only way to, to, to work through what, what you believe why you believe it, whether you're going to continue to believe it whether it can stand up to investigation and objections and so on um, and that I myself, yes I, I've had times of doubt I've, I've seriously questioned things, I've grappled with the, the literature on the, the problem of evil and the hiddenness of God and the uh, alternative explanations for fine tuning and, and, and all of this it's just that, yeah, I, I have myself happened to come out on the conclusion that I, I think it's at least more likely than not that there, there is a God. I'm not 100% certain about that. There are things that I am more certain of than I am that God exists. Okay. Uh, I would be with Descartes. I am more certain that I exist I, you know, than that God exists. I, I could imagine doubting and seriously thinking, OK, that there isn't a God. I really can't even imagine doubting, OK, I'm not really thinking this. That just you know so but uh, there are things that I think are more certain than my belief in God, uh, but I think that the, 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 the belief in God that God exists is is sufficiently rational for that to be where I'm, I'm staking my claim at the moment, but I want to be open to continuing that investigation and continuing to to look at you know the arguments against and so on that people uh, come up with. Can, can I modify my other questions, is it yeah, yeah
0: sure. The answer. To
2: that. <laughs> uh, the, the modification of it is more like uh, uh, so. This is. Uh, uh, I wonder. I wonder. How sure are you of this specific notion of God, rather than some really vague general idea of God? So, like, there's all this right, problem. Yeah. If you grew up in a Muslim society, do you think you would still be a Christian? Probably not. Uh, you grew up in a Christian society, you became a Christian. What a coincidence! Mm-hmm. I mean, so there's this all these different kinds of religions that you can grow up. In. And uh, that worries me a lot. That's why I mm-hmm. wouldn't join any society at all because it would be seen being so arbitrary. It's like why do I cheer for Manu rather than Liverpool? I have no idea. It's Just like the color of the suits yeah. they're wearing. I yeah. mean, it's irrational. So, uh, what, how certain are you of this particular notion?
1: You kept talking about the Christian God. I just kept talking about some fundamental being. Yeah, we don't know what it is. Uh, although, although I did, I, I did want to make space in, in what I was saying for for agreeing with you about the rationality of starting with a fairly minimal notion of God but being open to to getting a more specific notion and, and, and of course particularly with the arguments that I raised about the question of, of who Jesus is and what the historical evidence around that, you know, the Christian revelation claim is if you think that that evidence is good evidence and of course um, if you already come at that evidence with belief in the existence of some kind of a, a God with intentionality and power and so on, uh, then uh, it would take less specific evidence to convince you of the revelation claim than if you came in it as a, you know, a hard, atheistic sort of Richard Dawkins position or whatever. Um, but if you think that's uh, enough to, to, to convince you that, that Christ is who they, you know that the central tradition of Christian orthodoxy as authority was, then that does give you sort of leads on pretty immediately to a much more specified concept of, okay, the God is now the, you know, the God of Abraham, the God of Jesus, and uh, anything that, 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 that reasonably follows from that. But uh, I think I, I agree with you. I'm certainly, I am more convinced of theism, in general, than I am of Christian theism. Uh, again, you know, if someone were to show me uh, really convincing evidence that you know, Jesus didn't rise from the grave and the disciples all made up the Gospels and it was a con or whatever, You know, I can imagine such evidence being brought forward that might be convincing. Uh, And then, you know, what I would do was I would say, oh, OK, I was fooled about that. But that doesn't mean I have to give up on belief in God. I will retreat to a sort of general philosophical theism uh, of the kind that I think you can get out at the end of these arguments that I still think are good ones until such time as someone shows me that they're not. In which case, I'll change my mind again. And indeed, on on certain issues of, say, philosophical theology, I, I have changed my mind over the years. So uh, when I started at university as an undergrad, I, I took the view that God was atemporal. Uh, I've been since convinced by, and um, particularly reading the writings of William Lane Craig on this issue, that God is temporal and not atemporal. So I've, I've shifted my understanding of, of who what God is on the basis of engaging with, with philosophical arguments. Uh, but I, I haven't yet been convinced that there is no God. Yeah. So your question. right? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I think two. One. One would be. Uh, I think it would be good to give you an opportunity to comment on that sort of specifying Christian revelation claim, sort of evidence, on what you make of what you make of Jesus, and also to give you an opportunity to say something a little bit more about what it what it, what you mean by uh, living a religious life. <laughs> Uh, although you don't believe that there is a God, although you have hope, or tr- trust, or faith—however you want to put it—in in God in the absence of that belief, what does that what does that look like in in practice? Yeah. yeah
3: okay. So
2: I'll, I'll copy you the last
1: first.
2: Uh, uh, so how how do you live a religious life on hope rather than belief? Uh, so. The case I imagine is that uh, uh, that, uh, there's a requirement behind it. It, It's something like this. It's not irrational to act on your hope Mm -hmm. if it leads to better things. So if it leads to improvement or something, Mm -hmm. if it leads to you having a better life, and it doesn't hurt any others, and overall, when you weigh things up, it's better off Mm -hmm. acting on your hope than not acting on your hope. Then I claim it's not irrational Mm -hmm. to act on it. I couldn't have said it's rational, tactile, but I wouldn't go that yeah. far. There are on the side of caution. There a small here yeah. between not being irrational and actually being rational. Uh, but I, I say it's not irrational. So, case I, I imagine is someone like uh, a, so, someone who uh, doesn't really believe that there's a God, can't see the evidence favoring mm-hmm. it overall, and, and uh, but it really helps him in the social setting, in the life he lives, in the community he lives to go to church with the others and take his family to church and, and have you know this community that he hangs out with, social relations. He just gets a better life in general. And he really hopes there's a God. So he goes to church every Sunday in the hope that there's a God, but he just doesn't believe. Mm-hmm. And, and overall, this is not hurting anyone. This is not making things worse. Then it doesn't seem irrational for me, for this person to do that. Mm-hmm. So he can live according to even a very specific notion of God, like a Christian God. If he lives well, on that, according to that notion, and it does what the Christian ethics tell him to do and so on, that could be a good life for this person. And I wouldn't say it's irrational for him to do it, as long as he doesn't contradict like, other things that would be better for him, or he doesn't make things worse up for others, or he doesn't contradict science, he doesn't start saying stupid things about science, or anything like that, he just like, acts on the hope that there's some explanation behind all this other stuff. And that seems not irrational to me. So that kind of attitude, and that seems to be possibly a good life. Uh, And that seems to be something that uh, might even be better than to actually believe that there's a God who has these strong opinions about what women should wear and that gay people shouldn't have sex and all the specifics that just are so obviously parochial. They're so obviously like anthropomorphizing this God. This is a ridiculous, like. Human things to do. <laughs> so uh, it, it seems like uh, not having that specific notion. Um, yeah. So that's the kind of picture I'm
1: imagining. Oh. Thank you. Uh, what was the was question? person? Uh, what you make of what you do make of Jesus and, and the, the oh, central Jesus. Christian revelation thing?
3: Yeah. Oh,
2: Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really make much of Jesus. I don't know. Uh, I. I mean, uh, to me, the reason I didn't comment on your part on Jesus, uh, or my. I I would just leave it to the historian and archaeologist and so on to figure out whether this figure, Jesus, really existed. And the more evidence they gather of this real figure existing, the more I would believe that he existed. But then the next step would be is this real figure here, flesh and blood, something divine? And in that case, I have just no reason to think uh, he would be divine. The reason would be, you know coming from texts that was written a long time ago. And I wouldn't trust those texts being like, having read a lot of texts from a long time ago, I wouldn't trust those texts being really truth And In that sense, uh, people believed a lot of weird things back in the days and today. Uh, So I I guess my answer is just I I trust historians when it comes to the the Jesus flesh and blood version of it. don't trust the text very much when it comes to the divine part of it. To me, the Bible is a really great book. It's like one of the best novels i written. But it's not something I take. I don't have any reason to take that more seriously than other books of the same style, the same category. So that's my problem with it. I, I wouldn't treat it as special. Like I treat the Quran and other books in the same way. It's nothing special. There are some good stuff in there, some bad stuff in there some funny stuff in there, some outrageous stuff in there. Mm-hmm. And, and it's fun. It's fun to read, but you know, it's a book. And I have a very critical perspective of all books I read. So. Mm. I don't make
1: much of Jesus. So I think that's my answer. OK. Thank you very much.
3: Five, five minutes closing, Oh, we
1: have minutes five
3: minutes closing as, 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 as
1: well? All well. here? Ah. Me? me. It's yeah. fine. It's with me. Yeah.
3: You. Or you can go first if you I don't care. Thank okay. okay. you.
1: Now we've got separate mics, this is much more Should've smooth, should have done that for the yeah. Meaning, yeah. <laughs> Let's see. <coughs> so in my uh, opening speech, I observed that most people find God's existence to be intuitively plausible. Before sketching a number of arguments for God's existence, Einar explained that as someone who doesn't believe either that God uh, exists or that God doesn't exist, he judges the arguments for and against theism uh, to result basically in a sort of stalemate. On the anti-theism side of the balance, it seems to me that Einar raised very few issues, uh, none of which is actually an argument against theism as he himself defined it at the beginning of the debate. On a statement that the, the more we put into our meaning of God, the less likely God is to exist. One caveat there, I think, should be that this assumes that God can't have a metaphysically necessary existence. I mean, God exists necessarily puts more meaning into God than God exists. But if the former is true, then God's existence has a probability of one. If God is the, the, the ground of all things the causal ground behind the rest of reality apart from God himself then God's existence can't depend upon a sort of lucky throw of the contingent causal dice. The evidential argument from evil uh, has quite rightly featured heavily and it's a substantial topic and um, while much more could and should be said about it I hope we have seen that first of all this isn't an argument for atheism, and that whatever weight one does think that the the evidential form of the argument has, uh, the logical form having long been uh, abandoned by the majority of philosophers, whatever weight one thinks the evidential form of the argument has must, uh, and I agree on this, be weighed against uh, whatever positive evidence you think there is for theism. Talking of which, let's go back to the, the cumulative uh, argument that I opened with. Uh, on desire, uh says, no, it's not just that there were uh, these instincts that, that used to correspond to reality but that now fail to, and that that undermines the argument, but rather the fact that we, we're inferring from that data set of uh, innate desires that fail to correspond to reality to uh, reach the conclusion that we shouldn't trust such innate desires. But we we automatically, and uh, I think rationally do that all the time, until such time as we get evidence that we're wrong, and indeed now you'd have to focus on the question of, okay, well, how many of our innate desires do fail to correspond to uh, satisfactions? One might argue that at least the majority of innate human desires are not made in vain in that way but we do have these innate desires that would be in vain if God didn't exist and that therefore God does probably uh, exist, it would still uh, follow Uh, the argument from rationality that I brought up hasn't uh, really been uh, discussed between us design, uh, I must have misheard what what Ina said because he he says this uh, does perhaps apply to the fine-tuning, but then he himself, I thought, gave quite a good reason for being cautious about making that application. And indeed, I, I wasn't just pointing to the fine-tuning and saying, hey, doesn't that look like it's designed? I gave some criteria of specified complexity, criteria that in our experience, in other instances, is a reliable uh, criteria, indication of design, and saying that we should think the fine-tuning is designed because it fits that criteria. So we were being more careful there than simply pointing to our intuitions. On causation, could uh, this in in the past, uh, Big Bang is uh, an infinite uh, limit that you can infinitely uh, approach. I thought that was uh, quite an interesting uh, point, actually. But I think you'd still have to say on the Big Bang cosmology that there was a first physical state. And similarly, as with events, one might argue that physical uh, states, physical things, are contingent things that need causes, and that since there is no prior physical state to the first physical state prior to the Big Bang, uh, unless you're going to abandon uh, the idea that causality uh, uh, is there, then you're going to have to say that there was some sort of non-physical cause uh, and ultimately some sort of cause that does not in itself require a cause. In terms of duty, again, this move from something being good say, because it's pleasurable, but does that really ground, does that, does that automatically buy you the concept of it being morally right, morally obligated, or wrong, morally obligated not to do, is saying uh, this is pleasurable is the same as saying this is good, Does that get you the concept of a categorical moral prescription or duty more plausibly than saying that that obligation or prescription comes from someone who prescribes and obligates you? I don't think so. And uh, last but not least, uh, Jesus. uh, A little interaction there in the Q&A time. I would simply say that I I, I appealed to, particularly when you're talking about the, the data that I appealed to in the resurrection argument, I am appealing to uh, evidence that's accepted uh, by historians, and I'm not just meaning Christian historians, I mean the historical guild. uh, And the controversial question is how you explain the historically recognized facts of his crucifixion, burial, empty tomb, and apparent uh, perceived resurrection experiences of his disciples and so on. The question is, what does a better job of explaining that data than the Christian hypothesis? So I hope this debate will encourage you to continue critically examining not only the reasons for and against believing in God's existence, but your reasons for believing or not believing in God. And there, I know I can agree. So thank you.
2: All right, thank you. I'll be super quick, since people want to leave, probably. Uh, so uh, I'll just, let me just mention two things in closing. Uh, one is, when it comes to, you mentioned now, the, uh, the existence of God, is it, is it existence necessarily, or just contingently? Contingently meaning it exists, but it could have failed to exist. And necessarily meaning it couldn't fail to exist. It must have existed, no matter what. And, ex- and there are the great theories of necessity that I like. They're actually not demanding more of the world to be true than, uh, contingent truth. So the great necessary truth, like mathematics, the 2 plus 2 is 4, for example, is a necessary truth. And the reason it's necessary is that it's requiring nothing of the world. It's true regardless of how the world turned out. That's why it's necessary. While the contingent truths are true because of the way the world is. Uh, so, but they could have been different had the world been different. But mathematics, for example, couldn't have been different, no matter how the world turned out. So it's something that's true regardless. And I think the interesting part of the debate over God's existence is whether a God exists that has to exist necessarily. I don't think it's very interesting to debate whether God exists contingently, as a boring thesis, because it's sort of like not something we could even come to a priori by arguing if it's contingently. Because if the world of been different, it means he could not have existed. We need to figure out what the world is like first. So the interesting concept of God that we can reasonably argue about is the one that exists necessarily, regardless of how the world is. So I'm interested in the notion of God as sort of the fundament, fundamental ground of things that exist necessarily. It has to be there in order for there to be anything at all. So I think necessary existence is, is super interesting. The other uh, comment that uh, I'll just leave it with is I, I just, I just uh, wish, i <laughs> just end with encouragement, since he did. He encouraged you to think harder about this, critically. And I encourage you to think about these matters, but also to actually try to figure out whether you're what you really want to believe. If you really want to believe that there's a God, that's fine. Just be honest. Say you really want to believe that there's a God. And that's pretty much, I kind of want to. That's why I say I hope that there's a God. Uh, I just can't find the reasons yet. Maybe I will find them soon. But I wish the debate could be less split between the two sides, like uh, black or white debates. I wish there could be more nuances, I wish there could be like a debate where it's like, I really don't know, but I think these recent favorite, these are against, and here's why I the debate them until we die. I just wish there could be more grey areas. I want 50 shades of grey, in other words, <laughs> <laughs> in these debates, uh, not just uh, black and white. So. That's my encouragement, because uh, I really don't know. I've thought about this a lot. I'm like, like I've written on this, I've worked. This is my, like my promotion to is actually, philosophy of religion. So I do work on this all the time. I just can't figure out why people so strongly believe this thing. That's my problem. <laughs> so, so I encourage people to, be, to think through, especially the concept, whether you're actually really hoping it's true, and therefore looking for reasons, or whether you actually, what are the reasons you're actually having. Uh, I'm not accusing Peter of not, not being honest here. I'm just saying uh, this is where I think we would make some progress if we had this up on, on the table. More in these debates than we usually do. But I really appreciate it. Thanks to Peter and Life and everyone else who's organized this.
0: Are there any specific questions? Would there not be for questions at least to, to 10 minutes more? Life? We have, we have the term for another hour. So we, uh, we can take all the questions we want. We can take all the questions we want. Okay,
2: I have to actually get a taxi to the airport within half an hour. Yeah, half an hour. So, but I'm here for half an hour. Twenty minutes questions, and if you really have to pee, feel free to go to the bathroom. Uh, but twenty minutes for questions. Any questions?
4: I have a question. Um, uh, about uh, almighty God or God because I know it's not in all, uh, many different uh, religions they don't define God, it had to be almighty but some religions they do define God as almighty but uh, almighty is a state so you can do everything but you don't have to do it you, you are principle, you are able to do everything but unlike humans we ask we are un- almighty. We cannot.
1: We are not able to do
4: everything. But if you, you, you are able, you can choose to do it or not. But you are not able to do everything. So this is a state we can be in. We are always stuck, stuck in this state, rather you like it or not. But God seems like that He can, He or She are not able to be in this state that we are always stuck in. So. If we are not able to be in this state, is he still or she still almighty? In quantum mechanics, there's a, I'm a physical student and I study quantum mechanics. In quantum mechanics, you do can be in two states, which is completely contract with each other. But for every time you observe the state, if the state is observable, it will only show one. It will always shows. you can have many different states, certain positions, but you can always one state shows up when you observe So if somehow like the consequences is related to this problem and somehow that, well, he, you can argue that he, may, he is unlikely, but you can never observe then it. can you can always be true, because whenever you observe it, they only pick one. But when they pick one, that is contrary to the contrary to some religions, the state that is almighty. Because in this case, when you observe it, when you're able to observe it, they can only pick one of the states. So, so you collapse from, from... Yeah, you can be only almighty or unalmighty. You cannot be both, right? Because you're doing nothing. Uh, you are able to do, and you don't, you're able to do it, you, that you don't do it. It's completely different that you are not able to do it and you
2: don't do it. Same consequence, but different Did standards you say first. Yeah,
1: yeah, sure. So I mean, this is a, a, a variation of um, other people here might have heard, of, for example, the paradox of the stone. Can, can God create uh, a stone that's so heavy that he can't lift it? Uh, and if he, uh, if he can do that, then there's something he can't do lift the stone that he creates that's so heavy he can't lift it and if he can't do it then there's still something that God can't do. So uh, one thing that shows is it, it's, it, it, you have to be very careful by what you mean by being able to do anything. It's, uh, uh, philosophers are hugely taken the root of saying it. well it's anything that's logically possible, um, logically impossible things are not in a sense uh, things that God fails to do but, 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 but non-possibilities so um, it's not uh, possible for god to create uh, a contingent finite uh, creation over which he couldn't exercise control if he chose to Um, but that doesn't show that he lacks almightiness. that's uh, constituted of definitional of being almighty is essentially having the power to do anything that you want to do that's logically possible to do so again, God can't create square circles, but that doesn't mean he's om- omnipotent. And most, uh, I mean, J. L. Mackey, the A- uh, Oxford atheist philosopher, for example, made that kind of example and said, you know, th- this we could agree is, is no real sort of restriction upon omnipotence. So yeah, I, w- I would say if it's essential to God's nature to have almightiness, then no, he, he can't lack almightiness, cause himself to lack almightiness, um, but that just it, it is what it means to be almighty, uh, and uh, that's not really uh, problematical. Uh, and, and I'm really not uh, sure, not being a scientist myself, as of the um, applicability of quantum mechanics uh, to the issue. Um, if, if you could apply it, uh, it would mean that you could kind of uh, uh, go between the horns of that apparent dilemma. Of course. Uh, but I don't think you have to go between the horns of the dilemma. I think you just say, well, it's, it's not a, a real dilemma because what we mean by almightiness, omnipotence, it, it includes only doing things that are possible. And if God is by nature o- omnipotent, almighty, then that means it's not possible for him to not be himself uh, because that's just part of his essence. So.
2: So can I add something to this? So maybe that's why it's not showing himself, because then he would collapse into one stage or the other. <laughs> <laughs> that's the explanation we did in this argument.
3: <laughs>
2: no, but, uh, uh, one, another way of seeing it is that you take perfect being theism, as it's called, and you say, well, God is something perfect. And being perfect involves not being inconsistent. So, like, he couldn't create. So, my favorite example is could God roll a joint so big that he can't smoke it himself? <laughs> and the answer is no, because that would make him an inconsistent being. And that's not a perfect being. So, I mean, so it's a great making yeah. kind of argument that some people would give. A lot of what you just said the perfect omnipotence, the all powerful, all good, all knowing has to be considered in combination, not individual. Mm, so not yeah. each one to the maximum degree, but the combination. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's one way of, of looking at it. Uh and we solve those kinds of
1: dilemmas. Yeah. So I mean traditionally the Christian tradition has said uh, even though we believe God is omnipotent, we don't believe God has the ability to to do evil things. Because God is all good. And uh, being all good is as much part of God's consistent nature as being omnipotent. Omnipotence means being able to do anything that's logically possible that you want to do, but because God's all good, he never wants to do anything evil. So again, there's no limitation upon him. It's rather, it is constitutive of what it is to be like God, is to be that kind of being who is both, All good, and there's
2: also this alternative from Descartes and forward that Brian Lefto has defended recently, Mm. which is saying that there's this notion of God, and we can say it's actually in God to have created this stone they can't lift, but it just chooses not to. And The phrase it's in God to do what we claim is impossible is not like a moral notion, it's not a notion that deals with possibility. It's sort of like Mm. it's in God to do whatever we can imagine, actually, and more. But he just doesn't do it. He sells space of possibilities the way it is, for a reason. And it's just in God to create a different possible space. But space of possibilities. But he just did not But it's still in him to do it. And my criticism of this has been that like, you can say it's in him to do it, and say it doesn't mean it's possible. But I mean, this is making, calling me strong doesn't make me strong, right? Yeah, it's yeah. just uh, calling itself. So that's the criticism of that. It's a tradition that just flat-footed says. No, God could create small energy. And you could make it. And you couldn't make it. That's it. It was the problem. But, yeah. Okay. do you
0: yeah, have uh, more questions? Yeah.
5: Yes, so uh, about this probability uh, argument, uh, there are many possible explanations uh, for why the health are as they are. Maybe uh, if we get a deeper understanding of this, we'll see that there's only one way they could be. Or, there are a plethora of different proposals for how we can have separate cycles, how we can have so uh, 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 many of universes. are uh, of multiverses are already contracting and expanding events, and many kinds of explanations, so imagine why we could generate many possible universes, and therefore, since we exist to observe it, we have to be in the universe that we can observe. So, so just generating many universes solves the problem, because, because we have to, to have a universe these and of the universe. So the point is that we need some kind of explanation for why uh, we live in this universe with these constants that we live in. And one of these statistical uh, reasons seem very much more probable from, from like an Occupy-Praser uh, point of view, because we're only assuming one thing. We're only assuming, hey, there's some kind of process that generates different uh, kinds of combinations of, of, of constants. One thing, very easy to, to explain. And uh, Occupy-Praser is about how difficult it is to explain concepts, not about how many universe contain around the particles, around the objects. It's about the, how difficult, how many propositions you use, uh, so presupposing just a very small number of propositions is much easier than presupposing this entirely very complex idea of a in, of an intelligent being. So we have to specify every single kind of aspect of how he creates exactly this world. So that's that's a huge number of propositions. But well, you, you just it seems easy because we say God. But actually the concept behind God is hiding this this you know, massive amount of propositions, which makes this explanation much more complicated than an easy. Uh, just generation of, of, of
2: constants. Yeah. So I'm, I'm wondering why you see uh, God as a life extension. That's why that, uh, in any way, okay. f- appreciably increases probability. So can yeah. I answer that first? Yeah, you go first. So uh, there are, I to, I'm going to sit with a lot of these I mean, so here's a couple of things that uh, you might think. So here's a couple of explanations for the facts. So we see these constants. We see this, 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 like, improbable thing right here. And we want to explain it that there's something to be explained to Why is it like this? Uh, and then you might say, well, no explanation. it just should happen, it's chance. Another is that there's an intention there. Another is the multiverse. All the possible combinations actually exist, and this is just one of them. So they all exist, they are probably one, nothing to explain. And another is, some, giving some type of physical, the physicist's wet dreams, the theory of everything, that necessitates it. It just wouldn't be a mystery anymore, after we have the theory or anything. It would just fall out like, you know, logical truth. Uh, so these are the four main contenders. There are some crazy elements, but these are the four main contenders. Now, you have problem with this one was that it was too specific and complicated. Well, this one is sort of like simpler. And I agree with you. There's a big difference when people use Occam's Racer. They often use it by cutting down the number of things. But what they should do is cut down the number of kinds of things. They should cut down on, you know, having a million universes is no different from having one, really. It's the same kind of thing. So having one electron is not something we should go for. Because, you know, that's a bad use of the archaeological razor. Even if we can explain anything by the universal electron, it's actually a theory. If there's only one electron. But, so I agree with you on all that. And uh, you said, but here's my thing, and I think this goes with Professor that. I want to start with a minimal notion of God. I want to start with a notion of God that has nothing specific. It's basically just an intuition and (laughs) non-intuition. It's basically just an intention with some power and knowledge to realize it. It's sort of like we have. We already know what that is, in a way. And I'm saying that an explanation in terms of intention is somewhat more possible than chance. And then the the question is the multiverse is the main contender as an alternative explanation. And I think, in this case, my problem with this is not that there are many universes postulating. My problem is just that it isn't more empirically verified than this. It's a theoretical postulate here. And this is a theoretical postulate. So it all comes down to which one's you know, more possible kind of explanation of what's happening. Because there's nothing more in this than here. There's nothing more in this than here. But you're saying there's more than just in here because there's the intention and knowledge, but
3: it's not. We
2: already have intentions and knowledge. It's like saying, oh, there's because you have it. You have intentions and knowledge, right? Uh, it, uh,
5: yeah, yes, but I mean, you're, you're you're adding knowledge is, is a big concept. You're talking about uh, about uh, I'm guessing like knowledge about what kind of conditions will create life and knowledge about what kind of conditions maybe even. If
3: you want to we already it. have that kind of knowledge.
5: It's explainable by evolution in, in humans uh, having this knowledge out of nowhere as a first cause. That's much more complicated than saying that there's just there are several universes. Th- that's a very small precision
2: saying that there is a cause that has knowledge about all these no. kinds of that's a way more precision. I mean, so I agree that when you comp- when you postulate a psychology, you're making something. Well, here's the question: Is it more complicated to postulate a psychology behind it than postulating the physical theory that needs to realize uh, the multiverse? So which one's more complicated? And you might argue that the psychology is more complicated, because it's, you know, has psychological features. That's not here. But we already have psychological features in here. That's why I'm not convinced. And there's another feature that you also have to remember. That I don't I'm defending these But there's another feature also, <laughs> which is that, uh, uh, in this case, the multiverse, a couple of questions comes up. One is, well, how come the multiverse appears? So when's the multiverse? And then the question is, well, why is there life in the multiverse? Because the people who go for this argument, they think that life is something special that needs an explanation. And postulating a lot of universes that don't have life isn't explaining why there's life on this one planet that we are on, or this universe. So there are subtleties here that that this is not explaining. Like normativity for Peter, normativity is going to be a future. Other things, consciousness is a future. Other things, goodness in general is the future. Right? So there are, and life needs to be explained. And a multiverse alone doesn't explain life, which is what you need. And then you might appeal to the observation uh, position that we were here, we couldn't observe it unless we were here, so it has gotta be life in order to observe it. But imagine this, I think that's a bad idea. because imagine this, I'm being executed. I'm standing like this, 12 people are aiming at me to shoot me. And I got, I'm blindfolded. I'm about to be executed. So I can't see anything, right? They all shoot, and it's over, and I open my eyes, and I'm still alive. Now, I wouldn't be here to observe this unless I was alive. But that doesn't make it less surprising. It's not like, oh, I'm here, so I shouldn't be surprised at the fact that they all missed. Because I'm here. Well, I should still be surprised that they all missed because I'm here. I should think that someone didn't want to kill me or something. That's the intuition that's driving this kind of argument. And
1: possibly in the multiverse doesn't nice point. But I'm not going to defend this. period, you should defend yourself. I <laughs> think <laughs> you're doing an excellent job so far. So I said <laughs> it's feasible. I'm not totally
2: convinced
1: by this. I think it's a good point. <laughs> but I think the evil problem around this. Yeah, well, I, I think I would probably agree with a, a lot of what, what you have said. Um, i would pick up on that last point. Uh, the, the, the point here is that the fact that an event is a precondition of, it, of that event being observed doesn't explain the occurrence of that event. Uh, So as the atheist philosopher Peter uh, Peter Cave puts it this way, he says, conscious beings exist, so of course the universe is such a place that conscious beings can exist in it. But it may still be surprising that the universe is such a place when it could have been uh, otherwise, and particularly when there were so many ways of it being otherwise, that it it being this way, such that conscious beings can exist in it, uh, seems highly, highly uh, unlikely. So uh, that's the sort of uh, the bold statement of the the fact that was being brought up in there with the the executionist uh, uh, analogy. Um, Robin Collins is a philosopher that you should go to on the fine-tuning argument uh, he's got a website you can go to and find various papers for free. On uh, he's uh, uh, an expert on this subject, and, and he picks up on, the, on another point that I made. Uh, he observes that even if if a physically plausible many universe generator on these sort of scientific theories of many universes, you have to have some physical mechanism that produces lots of different universes, say different universes, rather than just uh, Photocopying the same sterile, lifeless universe an uh, infinite number of times, say. Uh, and any physical mechanism that produces different universes such that at least one of those different universes would be hospitable to life, any such mechanism itself has to be, in a sense, fine tuned uh, so that it can have that result. So appealing to a, 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 any sort of scientific many universe theory, apart from the fact that there is no independent evidence for them, Uh, So it's like appealing to the monkeys to explain uh, uh, the complete works of Shakespeare in the absence of independent evidence, it's the inflationary fallacy, Um, but it's also uh, to just kick the problem up a stage uh, from the one universe that we do know exists to well, what accounts for the fine tuning of the physical mechanism that produces all of these hypothetical different universes.
2: So can I just briefly add, because I, I can tell you you're not connected. So let me just briefly add something. Uh, look at this as the multiverse hypothesis. These are all the universes that could have been, and, and the concept, concept could have been tweaked, so that these, all these were realized. Multiverse says that they all exist. And the god hypothesis says that just this one exists, right? the color one. And now the colorness here is, is, is life. It's like it's, it's the living creatures, like we are rational, thinking, searching creatures. And only one of them. There's actually a couple. But there's actually some, but very minor minority of the possible ones are compatible with them. Now, the, the God theory says that well, you need an intention to explain why this is the only one that's realized. And the multiverse says no, because in quantum mechanical theories, they're all going to be realized. So they're all there. So there's nothing to be explained. But the, question that we to, the point that we're trying to make is that in this case, there's still only one that's lighting up. There's still only one that has life. Because that's what the physicists tell us, that all these others are incompatible with life. So they realize that. But there's not a life in any of these others. That's only in this one. So now you just look at a bigger sample. And I'm still puzzled. Why is there life in this sample? And the point is, well, because all the possible stuff is actually the case. So it's life. But the, that's ignoring the fact that life is something that needs to be explained. And that's what I think you're denying. I think you're just saying life doesn't really need an explanation beyond any other physical stuff. Then you could just swap over this. There's no reason for you to pick this over this. So really, multiverse has nothing to do with this. These are good pieces. Perhaps, so is this, according to you, because life doesn't need an explanation. And if you have that view, then of course this is not going to convince you. But that's—I think—that the debate is about people actually thinking that life needs to be explained; it's something special. But if you don't have that, you could just well say any gray world could have existed. There's no color to it, right? And this one happens to exist, and you here, so boom, done. But the theistic argument is that no, there's something special in the experience, there's something that's lighting up here that this doesn't. Now you can express your Frustration. Yeah. Fact, frustration.
5: That's making the question uh, that I-, I feel like most modern science from from evolutionary theory and then and, and just like back <coughs> forwards that, that life is nothing special. It's chemical reactions. but like, we we can see the progression from like simple repeating chemicals so, to cells, just cell viruses, all these kinds of things. We we involve patients and we can explain how the proteins work. We can skew them in microscopes, we can use the theories of this and chemistry to to explain how they work. That there's nothing special about life. There, there's nothing magical. There's no there's no uh, that, that animates living things that does not uh, appear in, in, in non-living things. So so it seems like we're moving out the scientific discussion if we're saying that life is something magical that it has. That I, mean, has it set set to, no, I think
2: you're exaggerating. It you <laughs> doesn't have to be magical. It doesn't have to be. I mean, you're just saying that life is just a physical process like any other. And I, I sort of agree with you, but I think there are features to life that need to be explained. Other features. Other physical processes don't have. And I actually disagree with you on the science that life is has no magical. It is actually a huge debate about what life comes from and what life exactly is. It's an intense debate and it's enormous. People don't know how to define life. So they know the physical basis of life, but they don't know exactly how life pops up. This is why they do artificial lifestyles and so on, to figure out what are the mechanisms behind this. So I think you're first of all exaggerating how unmagical life is, even in science. But I think most importantly you just saying that there's nothing to life. And this is where this debate always ends up, actually. Most people then favor this or this, they just think life isn't anything to explain. It's just like a physical problem. like what? There's water, and there's life, and there's a rock, and there are trees, and there's nothing special there. Nothing to be explained. And in that case, I'm totally with you. You should go for this one, actually, because of Artemis Razor on the numbering you should counter against this one.
4: But there,
2: this is actually weird stuff for me, because it's Going against all other kind of reasoning we make elsewhere in in in, uh, in our lives. So I have problems with this one. But I, I think life is more than we yeah, do. I think I feel like,
5: then, then that's the question I, that we should be discussing. Because we're, if we're presupposing that life is something special that has a cause, then, then, then that's where we're in mind against system. That's, that's the interesting question. Why is life special? Yeah. Uh, and, and, yeah. A lot of people
2: agree with you on this. I think uh, 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 Collins, that he mentioned, actually says the same thing. And I've written a paper on this where I say exactly that at the end of the paper, this is where the debate should go, because this is where we end up always. So I, I totally agree with you. I just, I just wish I could convince you a little bit more that this is just not actually happens. There's something more. Like I mean, there's also normativity and morality. There's consciousness. And these features just aren't physically explained yet. Consciousness, people have no idea what it is, physically. Because it's intrinsically first personal perspective, and physical processes are third personal perspectives. It's impossible to explain it in one and the other so there are mysteries out there mister that, <laughs>
1: that i think you should uh <laughs> I mean, this, this comes back to the the argument from rationality that i mentioned uh, i think your assumption that you know science can basically you know, be everything's reducible to the physics ultimately and that explains everything uh, I, I, actually I, I think that's not not true um and notice as well i i in terms of the multiverse two further points one i gave an i gave roger penrose's uh, he's an, uh, an atheist thinker. His argument against the multiverse, saying that there's, there's uh, evidence against the multiverse, uh, this is a sort of the problem of Boltzmann brains, if you're in science, you know about Boltzmann brains, uh, and the skepticism that would inveigle. And on the skepticism point, various people, and Sean Carroll recently uh, was making the argument that we should reject theories of the universe that have this implication of, of uh, Boltzmann brains and so on in the multiverse. Uh, seems to have that implication that uh, if in order to try and explain life you you try and do that by positing that sort of, well, basically everything happens somewhere in order to make it likely that this has happened here, then you actually undermine the entire scientific enterprise because anything that you look at and you think, oh, that needs explaining, what you just do is you say, oh, well, you know, stuff happens somewhere and indeed in an infinite multiverse everything is going to happen infinitely many times. In infinitely many places so there's, there's nothing to be surprised at, there's nothing to explain, let's ditch science, let's close down the science department and all we'll go hey. Um, I think that's too high a price to pay uh, for appealing to a multiverse theory just to get away uh, from the implication of design.
0: Do you have any last questions? Since you're... you're yeah I, I should go soon. <laughs> <laughs> yep.
5: uh, when you I uh, are talking about uh, your four different options for the universe, it seems like you only the only thing God is is uh, a, an explanation which you don't know. So uh, so that might be a good definition of God. But uh, why do you think that the thing we don't know about have a personality?
3: Yeah. I have an answer to that. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think. Uh, I think. Uh, so I, I want, to the extent that I'm interested in the question over, I want to work with the minimal notion of God. Now I feel like I have some grip of what it means to have an intention. I feel like I have some grip of what it means to uh, have some knowledge and power to pull intentions off. But why don't you start thinking about what it means for God to exist? What kind of creature this was? we really like physical, no? Concrete to some extent, yes. Rather than abstract, mental, yes. I mean. It, then I started losing grip from what this God is supposed to be, as I said in the opening statement. Because I don't really understand how you can, for example, have knowledge of something and pull it off, unless you have some kind of space to pull it off in, for example. I can't really visualise this and have a good grasp of those concepts. So the big question is, how do the psychological concepts we apply to God, which intention is one of them, that you need to, if this is supposed to work, uh, how can that concept apply to something that, for example, it doesn't have a body and is outside of space time? Mm-hmm. How can you be an agent and have an intention in that case? Uh, I have no clue. I and mean, this is one of the reasons why I don't believe there's so. <laughs> a So I don't really know. All I, all I think is that if you expand the being beyond the physical, which I'm inclined to do for other reasons, uh, then, uh, then you should be more open to this than just saying shit up. Because this does need explanation. This is really hard. Not this, but this. This doesn't need <laughs> explanation. This is too, but this doesn't need <laughs> explanation. Uh, so I, I I don't know. Maybe Peter has that. Well, I think it's right. I think
1: I think some of your concept have got it. Presuming we're taking this sort of bottom up natural theology approach to the issue, and there are other approaches mm-hmm. like religious experience or uh, revelatory tradition, uh, definition, and so on. Um, that uh, it's like putting together an identikit uh, picture. The people. From different witnesses uh, and the police sketch artist gradually composes the picture, and it might be that you know, one witness remembered the colour of the person's eyes, and another witness remembered that they had a scar in their cheek, and so on. But different witnesses put together the information. You're trying to come up with the most coherent hypothesis to uh, to put together the information you have from different sources. So I would just, you know, follow. The, the, I think you know that the fine tuning, the design arguments, get you to some sort of Transcendent, non-physical, personal what that you know—knowledgeable, sufficiently knowledgeable with reality with at least enough power uh, to do this. Uh, but it, I mean, it doesn't tell you uh, whether he's a nice person or a nasty person, really. I think there you might have to go to uh, the moral argument, or to a revelation, or religious experience in order to know those kind of things and gradually um, flesh out. Uh, your theological understanding of, of this being, if you're just taking that sort of bottom up, follow the evidence where it leads uh, French.
3: Again, I just
2: add something very really briefly. I mean, it might be that the intention that we talk about here, it might just be that, you know, think of artificial intelligence. This is another topic I'm interested in. Think of artificial intelligence, and you have uh, robots getting more and more lifelike. And there are systems like AlphaGo Zero, which has beat the uh, world champion Go in this last fall. In the system, there are algorithms that are being implemented. And uh, it might just be that the intention that we see is sort of like a confused thing that we have because we think we're so special and alive. But it might just be that this intention that we see in each other is just the kind of algorithm being implemented in biological material. Now, you might think that there's an algorithm behind the universe uh, that created this. And that's why this exists. And that would be something like this. But that algorithm might then be the kind of intention we're looking for. Because it would be an explanation of this. You might put some psychology into this into these structures, functionalistic structures, rather than thinking that there's something very special about life. And that would for me get much the same out because it would be uh, better than this, I think. Uh, so it would, it would for me favor something like the intentional creature mm-hmm. if you just meant an implemental algorithm behind it mm-hmm. that had like the would, so then in, in computer science, there's a lot of study on the universal algorithm, the fundamental algorithm. It's like the one algorithm that explains everything. And that might just be God. for me. I might be happy with that. It's like, it doesn't need to be like this person. I don't know, because that's too much of a loaded concept for me to apply to this thing. So, but I mean, I don't think you should just like, I, I find, my hope was just that like your atheistic, militant atheism shouldn't reject this as insane and go for this without further ado, because this is actually better
5: than this. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I have to go back. It, it is not better, but the question is not what's best, the question is what's true. Um, it's not the be best out.
1: explanation. Yeah, yeah.
5: yeah. But then, uh, if we uh, say that there's some kind of algorithm that uses this, this selection of, of universes. I, I, I might be reading why, when you look closer to the universe, find that there is some kind of rule, like laws of mathematics, or other kind of physical laws that, that makes this the case. But uh, there's no reason to assume that that physical law, that, that as, as, except for all the other physical laws, should have some kind of personality, some kind of intentionality.
2: It, well, why couldn't uh, we have, if we are algorithms, why couldn't this algorithm be like us?
3: Well, it would be a better explanation.
5: The amount of possible algorithms that can select for the most suitable life with another life, and, and I think it's—it's—we uh, have no reason to, to to select one that is report. And anyway, if, if, if it's a purely rule-based algorithm, then it makes no sense to create it or just uh, uh, give it all these kinds of, of personal personal. Uh, that we need to do something that we
2: call God. It seems confusing to call such a mechanistic
3: algorithm
1: algorithm of God. Yeah, and, and, this is, and this is why it's important to take on board that we're, the thesis is presenting uh, a cumulative case from a number of different arguments, as, as I said, work, working in this natural theology, bottom-up tradition, uh, and you're, you're raising questions about... You know, what is the best explanation and understanding of, of, of algorithms? And you'd have to ask questions about, uh, you know, do algorithms themselves need explanations, or can they be the fundamental explanations? If the explanation of why the universe is here is algorithmic, wouldn't that mean that it works by a sort of necessity and that the universe exists necessarily, rather than contingently, as it seems to do? But then, you see, then the theist would be bringing in, so you know, cosmological argument from contingency to help Work out what the best overall explanation is. None of these arguments, setting aside the ontological argument for a moment, none of these arguments is going to do the whole job for you in one go. Um, That's why, in in, in a sense, you need to get a familiarity with the, the sort of overall case. Um, that we're dealing with uh, without getting sort of missing the wood for the trees by just focusing on on one issue you've got to become familiar with the issues and then kind of step back and do this comparative I've got familiar with all of the issues on both sides to a sufficient degree that I I believe I can start making a judgment about which way the, the, the balance pan of my opinion as it were is being moved by the overall strength that I assign to these, these different overall cases for what's the best worldview explanation here. So,
2: can I just add one comment to you, or all of you? All right. So, uh, if, if I, the, I would presume a worldview like yours, I'm just generalizing on you now, a worldview like yours uh, would think that we, our mentality is sort of like an algorithm implemented in biological material. So, uh, I have intention. I intend to do well, I intend to be nice, and I have intentions. So there's an algorithm about my intentions. What if you found that algorithm? Uh, you found a universal algorithm, I'm explain this, but a sub-algorithm of that would be that corresponds to the intentional algorithms I have, for my intentions. Wouldn't you then say that this universal algorithm had an intention to create this? It would be like, Sort of like the same kind of stuff, you just implement a different material. And in in informational information theory, you know that information can carry through in different material. So it doesn't matter if you transform it electronically, digitally, in water, in written notes, you can transform the same amount of information uh, in standard informational theory. You can transform the same process, the same amount of information in different (coughs) material. So the intentions that I have to do good, this guy might have those intentions too, in different material. As a an algorithm, you know, that would be a cool picture. <laughs> and that would be like, you know, enough for me to say, well, I think that's a good argument. So. But, I don't know,
0: I just made that. Well mm-hmm. So we need to close that. I actually have to go, otherwise yeah. I have to book a so, hotel. Thanks very so, so much, uh, Thank you for the great. great debate. Thank you uh, for both uh, participating. Thank the audience. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for Some the audience, questions. Been uh, asking mm-hmm. great questions and been attentive. Uh, we, uh, some of us will be <laughs> just staying and uh, having conversations, and as we said, we have until... Uh, huh? Five? Five. Um, uh, we, ha- we have the room for another 20 minutes, so we can stay and uh, talk uh, a bit more. Thank you.